I think just kind of trying to hygienic zone it more. So, you know, you have your receiving pits, you know, your, your dirty side there where they're getting your ingredients in, uh, trying to limit, you know, movement of workers between, you know, the dirty zone and where your finished feeds at. If you do, you know, try to put on some, some boots or something, PPE, uh, different equipment between the two sides there as well. You go know, a big way if you, you know, all that dust, dust is, you know, a major vector for salmonella. So trying to control that, you know, not having that dusty broom from that side going over to your clean side, that can go a long way when help prevent that. A whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global poultry industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Your partner for improving animal performance, Berg and Schmidt. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutritional program innovation. Start your journey with us at Eastman.com. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global poultry industry. One of AB Vista's core strategies is to give customers the flexibility to do more with less, which is a common theme among many companies and producers in today's industry. As a science-driven company, AB Vista has proven results to help our customers achieve optimum performance using customized programs with our core phytase and xylanase. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show. Today I'm here with Tim Boltz. Welcome. Hey, welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you today. It sounds like you've got some neat topics for our listeners. But first, I would like to hear how you got into chickens. So I guess my journey in poultry started growing up. We had backyard birds, you know, chickens, some ducks, some geese. I've always just kind of liked the birds, you know, went through college. I got a degree or my bachelor's in animal science, general animal science. From there, I, you know, I thought nutrition was was interesting. So you just kind of pursued that, ended up with Dr. Mortz out in uh, Western University, just kind of went through there, you know, pursued that poultry nutrition aspect as well as the feed manufacturer, just kind of fell in love with that. And here I am now making it, hopefully. <laughs> just making it. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about where the here I am now is? Uh, what, what was your past to your current position? Um, so up until May of 2022, I was a graduate student. Uh, I did both my master's and PhD with Dr. Morris in West Virginia. After that, I got a, a faculty position as an assistant professor down here at Mississippi State University. I've been here since May of 2022, starting to get my lab up and running, getting that all going and, and getting situated. Awesome. I am looking outside at your scenery and you, it looks a lot warmer than it is here in Iowa. So I'm a little jealous. <laughs> 60 today at least it was it was kind of cool the last couple of days but not not cold <laughs> not super cold i uh, i see your theme of your graduate studies and your employment is in warmer states so good <laughs> good for you it was a little colder but yeah, little cooler, it's better yeah. Wyoming, colorado oh gosh yeah so what are some of the things that you're currently doing within uh within your new lab those are always interesting questions it takes a little while to get started 
Yeah, so I've been working, and you know, I've been here about a year and a half, I guess. Uh, started doing some studies, some general, you know, bird performance studies, speed additives, everything like that. Kind of getting that off and going. It's something simple. I've been trying to continue on with kind of the feed hygiene aspect. I've done a little bit of lab-based stuff, looking at uh, the thermal re- uh, inactivation of E. coli in feed. We kind of use a water bath method. Uh, and then I also got some some funding here and as well. And then recently, or hopefully soon, I got uh, a lab scale pellet mill coming in, so that will go and kind of advance that as well. We can you'll mimic more of you know an actual feed mill in there, and you know smaller scale, a little bit easier to clean. We could use those BSL two pathogens and, and everything like that, and make it more applicable, I guess. Can you tell us for I mean, some of the listeners may be really uh, uh, acquainted with feed hygiene and the importance in the poultry industry, but for those that might not be, can you just give a little background and why this area of research is important? So I, I guess it kind of goes back about, I think, 2011 is when they started thinking about this, you know, uh, Food Safety Modernization Act, FISMA, you know, trying to produce safer food. You know, the thought there as well is, you know, if we pr- produce safe feed for these animals, they're in turn going to produce, you know, safer food for us, you know, less salmonella, you know, campylobacter, everything like that. So that's kind of the thought there is how do we make a you know, pasteurized product or uh, pasteurized mm-hmm. feed or like that before we give it to the bird and the thoughts of you know, that helps prevent salmonella from colonizing them or another pathogen that then could end up in the processing plant, end up contaminating other carcasses, you know, uh, further process uh, products, everything like that, that actually, that eventually end up for us. And then we get sick and, you know, two bucket disease and not fun times. Yeah. <laughs> so um, within the aspect of grain processing, do you know if there's an estimate as to like what percentage of grain coming into a mill might be contaminated and what the most frequent pathogen would be? So I, I've heard a lot of varying uh, mm-hmm. you know, takes on that. I've heard some people say that, you know, that they go and they test a lot of different loads out there, you know, of corn, soy meal, you know, bulk ingredients like that. And they can never really find salmonella or mm-hmm. you know, E. coli. You know, I think salmonella is more the main one that we, we think of in feed. You know, there could be the E. coli and, and everything like that. But salmonella is kind of what I think of. Um, and there's other people, you know, you go and you get, you know, it's not a very high prevalence, you know, maybe 20% or something, but it's still, they're, they're still finding it. So it's, it's a really, it's, you, you figure it's there, but it's hard to find sometimes. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, you gotta, I guess, be in the right spot at the right time to kind of get it. You know, there's some other aspects that play into that. You know, if you're trying to keep your mill a little bit cleaner, you maybe, you know, focusing more on, you know, kind of hygienic zoning and stuff like that, maybe you've reduced the likelihood of it going from, you know, the dirty side to the clean side, you know, if there is anything that is on, you know, those raw ingredients, bulk ingredients we're getting in. Yeah. So is there, so there could be an issue with ingredients, but do you think there is an also an issue with, let's say flies or, you know, other insects that might be in a mill just because mills are, you know, somewhat open and <laughs> yeah, yeah. insects can be around easily. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that, you know, insects, you know, flies, uh, beetles, anything like that, you know, if there's rodents as well, birds, wild birds, mm-hmm. I think they all could be vectors, you know, they come in there, they, mm. you know, they defecate or whatnot. They bring in, you know, they're coming from, you don't know where, uh, they could be, you know, touching stuff, bringing that in there. You know, it, it's, it's important to try to control for, you know, those insects, bugs, or excuse me, uh, rodents, birds, everything like that. But it's, it's kind of hard, you know, cause it's, you can get every single rat, every single fly, every single sparrow, but you know, yeah. trying to you know, bait them and putting fly traps out and trying to lock it up, you know, button it up as, as tight as you can. I think that goes a long way in trying to prevent those pests from coming in. Yeah. So what's the impact of the different processing methods on the incidence of some of these foodborne pathogens? Like, would you say because mash doesn't go through 
the same heating process as a pellet? It's more prevalent? Or do some of these pathogens still persist after they go through some of those more intensive conditioning and pelleting processes? So I've never really looked much in the mash, like, you know, a commercial layer diet type of that, you know, uh, prevalence of that in there, you know, uh, but you, you figure that, you know, it's not getting any of that thermal processing. So mm-hmm. maybe it's not knocking down any of that, any pathogens that could possibly in there. In my, my grad work, we did some stuff there looking at, you know, you know, 80 C, uh, 70 C, looking at the comparison of those, you know, uh, the reduction of, uh, we used a surrogate organism in there. You know, we saw that those higher temperatures, longer conditioning times did knock it down compared to, you know, 70 C for you know, 15 seconds. Uh, it's kind of, you know, that, that's something that's interesting to think about, you know. Yeah. Is it, yeah. Is it more prevalent maybe in laying hens because they're not getting processed feed? You know, it's just a mash feed versus, you know, a broiler that maybe, you know, they're getting that pelleted feed. I think another thing, too, is trying to control for recontamination, you know, with the pellets. Uh, if you, you say you pellet them and it, it, not, it gets rid of everything, you're getting a, a sterile pellet, you know, high, or a, uh, you know, a pellet like that. But then goes on, it, it's, you know, brought to the female, it's cooled, and then it's usually sent, you know, augered around, put into a bin, put into a truck, you know, shipped out to a farm, again, another bin, and then usually a feed line. There's possible contamination, recontamination right in there. So you could be making a, a you know, at the feed mill, when that pellet comes out of the pellet dye, it could be, you know, pasteurized. But then once it gets to the farm, it, it could be recontaminated from the various steps after that. So that's, that's another concern there, not a concern, but a, a thought of like, hey, do we... How, how we handle that you know do we add a product in there that might help prevent that or do we just focus more on making sure our, our augers are clean our you know our cooler decks cleaned off well it's kind of a, a hard thing to think of but yeah going well. yeah there's a lot of a lot of moving parts there <laughs> yeah too many so so from a research perspective um, you mentioned surrogate and then using like an actual you know bsl2 pathogen What's your opinion on the best method of approach just for repeatable experiments that end up having an impact in the, we'll say in the wild, in the industry? (laughs) So I think the best thing to do is, you know, if you're going into actual like a feed mill environment, you want to use a surrogate organism. You know, that's, that's going to be an organism that's not going to, you know, if it gets in the feed, it's not going to cause any illness in the animals or people working with it, really. Uh, if it persists in the feed mill, you don't want that, you know, the, the, the lines. But if it is, it's not really going to cause any issues. And we did some work with that, uh, looking at some E. coli strains. And we had a, a surrogate we were going to try to use. We found it's actually not very thermal stable. Um, mm. So, you know, that does make it a good surrogate because the whole thought there is you want a surrogate that's, you know, be more thermostable than your uh, pathogen of interest. You know, so if it if you knock it down with a high temperature, you're definitely going to be getting your E. coli, your salmonella, your campy, whatever it may be. Uh, so there's, you know, the, kind of that work there, thinking about that, trying to go there, find a good surrogate, then go with the feed mill and apply it. Uh, repeatability, I think I think it'd be pretty, I mean, as long as you're starting with similar concentrations each time, you know, an eight log concentration or a seven log, whatever you start with, try to keep it consistent. Uh, you know, and then, you know, the feed mill, there's a lot of other variables there. Uh, ambient conditions, temperatures, humidities, everything like that can affect it. So trying to pellet, you know, if you're doing repeat, repeated measures on that, you know, try to always go on a warm, sunny day. If you're, if that's how you started, you know, and then it, there's a lot of factors though that, you know, you can't control the weather. So sometimes it's hard to do, but yeah, that's uh, more factors never helps <laughs> repeatability. Right. But it's real world. <laughs> yeah. I mean, cause yeah, the feed mill runs, you know, most days of the week. So it's, if it's rainy and crappy out, it's still running. If it's sunny, if it's windy, cold, it's still running no matter what. Yeah. 
So what have been some of the the highlights or、um, even challenges for the first year and a half at your position? What's what's it like to be you and starting up a new lab <laughs> in the real world? It's a lot of stuff you don't think about when you're in grad school. You know, trying to find funding. Budgeting, everything like that. You know, trying to you know plan a, a study. You know, a lot of times in grad school, we plan some of our studies, but we had you know, our major professors kind of looking over us, checking that out. Here, it's you're kind of on your own, have an idea, you send it off, new company, whatnot. You talk it through. It's it's a lot of stuff you don't think about.、Uh, just getting that, you know, funding, getting everything up and running, finding students. It's kind of the hard part. I mean, it's it's not really hard, but it's the more challenging part. I've I've guess I've experienced so far. What else? I guess. One of the better parts is, you know, the students.、Uh, I'm not that much older than a lot of students, so I still kind of feel like I relate to them a little bit.、Uh, you know, it's fun to go in there. You see them; they they learn stuff. They seem to enjoy. I try to be a little bit, you know, interactive with teaching. They seem to enjoy that. They they seem to be taking that away and understand. Hey, it's some basic poultry nutrition. You know, they're they're coming out of the class knowing more than they did when they started. So that's, I guess, that's cool. You know, and them doing that.、And、then got a couple grad students now, and you know, seeing them go out there and. You know, start to do some research, and you know, see them kind of having those light bulb moments. Oh, hey, this is why we do this. You know, everything like that. It's that's that's I guess rewarding and cool to see is you know the next generation coming yeah, up and、yeah. getting up and going and, and coming into the industry. You know, academia. Yeah, for sure. So, what what are some of the I guess focus areas you you kind of alluded to some of your very first projects that you've started since、uh, you you joined,、um, but. What are some of your focus areas now, and what are some of your like goal? You know, if money was no, no option, like where do you where do you want to go with your research career if you weren't constrained? <laughs> I think the feed hygiene stuff is is really you know that work is really interesting. You know, I, I got that pellet mill here, so that will be that will open up a lot more doors because you know we can actually it's small enough we can get in there, clean it out really well, so you can、mm-hmm. disinfect it. You know, and then you can go in there actually use real salmonella. Strains that you could, you know, you've、uh, found actually out in the field. You know, in a feed mill there, you know, looking at like different E. coli strains. You know, because that it's not super necessarily applicable to poultry, but you know, you know, there's an apex that could possibly be coming in through、mm-hmm. feed, get birds sick.、Uh, you know, 0157. You know, thinking about you know ruminant diets. You know, those pelleted diets possibly trying to reduce that. I think the feed hygiene. We're also here, at Mississippi State. We're trying to get a feed mill up and going as well. It wouldn't be BSL two, but still just having that, you know, that nice little. Feed mill there to work in and you know kind of continue. I, I did a lot of throughput work, you know,、mm-hmm. uh, production rate work in, in grad grad school, so that was really cool. You know, just pellet quality, seeing how that affects birds. You know, using different ingredient inclusions,、uh, you know, alternative ingredients. If you pellet those, does it make the pellet better? Make it worse? You know, I, that's always kind of an interesting thing.、Uh, Thermal stability of enzymes as well. So yeah, the feed hygiene, I guess, would be my my major area if I had. Unlimited funding gifted to me, do what I want. I'd really like to focus on that. You'll make a nice little lab. You'll be able to run actual pathogens through that little pellet mill. You know, maybe some point later on, you'll find a more of a pilot scale type BSL two feed mill. See if they get you know the similar results there. You know, compared to our small mill. What else? And then I guess yeah, you know, I think too just a general nutrition. You know, applied nutrition. Hey, you have an enzyme. You want to you know you have a new enzyme. You're trying to Put on the market, see how that affects bird performance. You know, pellet it, feed the birds, see how that does. I think that's that's kind of interesting stuff as well. You know, different products like that.、Uh, you know, I did a lot of enzyme type works.、Uh, I know there's a lot more of the phytogenics type out there now. Essential oils. You know, I think that would be kind of interesting too to get into and see how those you know work. Yeah. So,、um, what do you think? 
about how like the industry is receiving some of this information. Do you think feed hygiene has enough of an emphasis or do you think it's going to become even more popular, um, especially since what we're 12 years past some of the, maybe the FISMA changes, but I guess, is there enough emphasis on it right now or is it something that we really should pay more attention to at the industry level? I think, I think it's pretty good right now. I've talked to some, some people, you know, commercial nutritionists out there and they they're talking, they're like, Hey, this is like your life now is, you know, thinking about those fits, you know, if the yeah. if, you know, big plants have asset plans, everything like that, just thinking that through, like, how do we you know, keep our workers safe? You know, a lot of times I think that's kind of the thought there is how do we keep our workers safe? You know, and then once we produce that feed, you know, a big integrated operation, they're not really going to be handling it again. It's you know, going to be loaded onto a truck and then shipped to a farm. And uh, so, you know, they're just worried about the, the beforehand as they're making it. Cause after that, the birds are getting there, but I think still, trying to think of ways to help it get from recontamination, you know, get to those, those farms. I think that's kind of the main thing. I think that they're, they're doing pretty good work with that as well. You know, they're thinking about that, trying to, you know, do more cleaning. So I think yeah. there's pretty good emphasis on it now, but it, it, that might change more, you know, legislation, everything like that could always increase or decrease its importance a little bit. And it probably not decrease, but increase the importance. Yeah. So what are I get, what are some of the major like pieces of legislation that need to be paid attention to? Like, is there anything changing in certain parts of the United States that would alter what someone is doing elsewhere? I mean, because some of these companies have mills in several locations, and it could affect overall operations, right? You know, I, I'm not super up to date on that. I know the FISMA, you know, that's kind of like the the whole umbrella one that I'm aware of. You know, everybody's yeah. kind of, uh, you know, they have to comply. I think. Everybody has to be complying with that. I think it was like 2020 or 2019. Somebody mm, should be doing yeah. that by now. Uh, individual state-wise, I don't really know if there's a whole lot of like, you know, if Mississippi has something versus oh, Iowa sure. versus, uh, you know, Michigan, whatever a state, you put a state in there. I'm not sure if there's different legislation in, in those states that would impact it. Yeah, well, it's, it's good to know because <laughs> sometimes there's additional state rules, right, on top of whatever a yeah. federal. <laughs> federal yeah, you get individual little state little thing that they want their own little piece of the pie type of thing. Yeah. So are, do you think there's any maybe high impact practices you could recommend if you were to go to an operation that's maybe having some trouble with some aspect of feed manufacturing that would, you know, lead to increased contamination? Like what are, what are the big key takeaways if you want to improve? I think just kind of trying to hygienic zone it more. So, you know, you have your receiving pits, your, your dirty side there where they're getting your ingredients in, uh, trying to limit, you know, movement of workers between, you know, the dirty zone and where your finished feeds at. If you do, you know, try to put on some, some boots or something, PPE, uh, different equipment between the two sides there as well. You know, a big way if you, you know, all that dust, dust is, you know, a major vector for salmonella. So trying to control that, you know, not having that dusty broom from that side going over to your clean side, that can go a long way when help prevent that. Uh, more on like the conditioning, uh, you know, conditioning times and temperature side of that. I think that really varies, you know, from my understanding, there's not a whole lot of, you know, an industry, uh, you know, guideline that, hey, you need to pellet it, you know, ADC for 30 seconds. It's it, it kind of varies mill to mill, you know, uh, operator, operator, integrator, integrator. Also, you know, location, because, you know, sometimes mm. if you're up north, you know, Minnesota or something, you're not going to be able to, you know, put as much heat and steam into that feed because you get to a certain point where you're going to plug the dye, whereas down south, you know, we have a little bit more wiggle room, so we can go a little bit hotter. Well, sometimes we have to because it's just so hot and humid here. We have mm-hmm. to go really hot just to get some extra moisture into that feed. 
so I, I think it kind of just varies. You know, I don't know if there's really that doesn't answer your question super well, but yeah, I mean, it varies really. You know, mill to mill, location, everything like that. I think just I think the big thing would be just kind of hygienic hygienic uh, zoning, yeah. trying to prevent contamination between uh, clean and dirty. You know, I think that that can go a long way. Um, this is sort of related. I know most of you in microbiology, but have you had any interest in projects that are more on like the high path even influenza side? Have have there been any indications that any anything's being transferred through feed? I know it's usually thought about through um, aerosolization or ventilation and, and, and flocks, but I guess I was curious to know if if feed ever is a route um, if a flock gets infected with flu. Yeah, it's something I've I've never really thought of that. You know, you think about you know somehow you know if there's a wild bird in a, in a feed mill and it has a you know high path and it you know does something and gets you know contaminates that feed with that. It's something I've uh, you know it's a thought in the back of my mind, but something I've never really thought about you know expanding on because it would be a good thing to look at because I mean that's that could be a possible introduction rate or route as well. You know, we think that, you know, you step in some bird droppings, go into a house or aerosolize, but feed can also be another way. <laughs> Scary to think about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Can't control it. <sighs> Gosh. Yeah. It's the, the nightmare that nobody wants. <laughs> so what have been some um, fun things that your grad students, I mean, so they're working on these projects um, have you had a chance to kind of have your grad students mentor other students with other projects? Like, what are what are some of the things that you find since you said you know, you were really into training? Um, what are some of the things that you've been successful with as far as your first couple of years with finding grad students and then kind of moving them on in their studies? I mean, I just kind of lucked into, you know, I found a couple <laughs> folks that were looking and, you know, they were willing to take a shot on me. So they were here. You know, it, it's just cool. My, my first one, he's been here for about a year. Mm-hmm. a little over a year you know he's helped out and you know, we're starting to do some some of his projects he did some e coli stuff in the lab so that was cool he kind of uh when he got here i don't think he had a whole, a whole lot of lab experience you know cultivating bacteria you know anything like that so that was cool you know he kind of now he's he's a little bit more proficient than that he understands hey you know if i want to make this e coli analysilic acid resistant you know this is what i need to do to get that and so that was cool because you could trust him like hey can you go do this he's like yeah and he knows how to do it so that, that's cool i know he's he's helped a lot of the other groups here you have dr walmsley dr adakari they're doing nutrition research he's helped out there you know he's learned a lot i think with that and that's cool because yeah. you know talking to him he's like oh hey you know we're talking about trying to you know what's a good way of sampling or something you know he's picked up little tips and tricks that i maybe not have thought of because i haven't worked as much with them they have more experience so that's just cool seeing that uh, what else? My other grad student, she actually started her first trial or her first study here Monday. So it's mm-hmm. been a learning experience. She's got birds for 21 days. So, you know, she's, I think she's been a little stressed, but, you know, she's doing good so far. And, you know, she was, she's been working hard learning, you know, what, what do you need to do? Hey, I need to go in there. These papers need to be changed because they're on cages right now. They're looking a little gross. I need to go in there, change yeah. those. Hey, I need to feed them. So it's cool to see her kind of step up, I guess, and be like, hey, like, this is my project. I got to you know do this. This is my yeah. responsibilities now. So that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love watching the grad students develop. So getting a couple of good ones is um, key yeah. <laughs> when you're Sorry, yeah. when you're when you're early on in your career. We had we uh, we did some stuff with viscosity and that was oh. you know, I, I did a little bit with that in grad school, but not a lot. And so, you know, they I kinda stepped up and, and you know, they've learned how to use it. They're a lot more proficient with it than I 
and yep. wherever it was. So that, that was cool yep. too, seeing them. I'm like, hey guys, like I know how to turn the machine on, you know, and, and roughly use it, but they actually broke through there and they actually, you know, did some work with it and got pretty good results. So that was that was cool to see them kind of be better than I was, you know, yeah. step up and learn learn a new piece of equipment and whatnot. So that was that was also yeah. a really cool experience. Yeah. So I know that in kind of the, the big scheme of what you could do in the poultry industry, um, feed manufacturing and milling is definitely a major part since all our birds eat quite a lot of feed. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what kind of things from a research perspective could a student get involved with, maybe if they're thinking about this as a career path as an undergrad? I know not every school has a feed technology major. So if you were going to pursue this as a career, what's your, what's your best advice for somebody who's kind of interested in the feed manufacturer side? So I think, you know, getting in contact with someone, you know, professors most of the time know someone. A lot of times uh, the big integrators, they have, uh, I think it'll work your summer internship programs. You know, yeah. they go out there and there's usually somehow a feed mill component on there, you know, that you could kind of get into you'll go for a summer work at a feed mill and actually see, Hey, is this something I like? Is this something I want to pursue? Uh, I mean, too, you know, just looking for employment, you know, a lot of times those feed mills, you know, they need to be staffed and it's sometimes hard to keep them staffed. So, you know, your whatever local company, they have a feed mill, you know, close to your home. Uh, you're, you're not doing anything for a summer. You know, they could look into that. Hey, I can go work at this feed mill for a summer and you'll get some experience, you know, pelleting feed and, and everything like that. Get that, you know, and then like, Hey, is this something, I want to do as a career. Is this something I want to go back to school for? You know, find a program like you mentioned. You know, and, and go more into that. You know, technical science side of that. So I think that that would be their best bet. Would just be maybe find someone or you know go through the internship. You know, apply for a job through an integrator, everything like that. To get started, get their foot in the door. Yeah, I, I think the internship idea is great. So if you were going to describe like what an undergraduate might do for an internship or what the focus of the job might be. Is it, is it hands-on? Are you helping to handle feed? Are you helping to clean? Are you, you know, watching programs run? You know, like what, what, what are kind of some of the entry level, what is the experience I guess you might have if you, if you did an internship as an undergrad? So I, I, I never did that in my undergrad. So, but, you know, yeah. speaking to people and, you know, talking to students have done it and, you know, folks like that, you know, I think a lot of times it's, you know, a lot of hands-on, you're going to be out there, you're going to be learning everything in the feed mill, you know, you're not going to yeah. you always, you know, dumping in uh, bag, you know, uh, ingredients in the micro bins. You're going to be going, doing everything. Mm-hmm. You're going to learn about how to control it. You're going to learn, you know, how everything works, you know, general maintenance and stuff. Hey, something breaks down or, or whatnot. How do we go back and fix that, get that up and running? You know, I, I think they'll, they'll kind of get a, a, a crash course, I guess, in the whole feed mill. They might be sweeping some. They might be, you know, unloading bags. But they also might be watching, you know, seeing how, you know, uh, the manager runs everything and, you know, the programs he's going to be using. It's kind of yeah. a crash course, I guess, would be the best explanation for it yeah that sounds awesome i know um we have a nice uh, a healthy undergrad population and they all do most of them do an internship at some point and some of them just aren't sure what the internship looks like so they kind of get nervous and go towards something that might be more familiar but we need people to work in feed mills so badly so (laughs) it's always great to plug yeah (laughs) awesome it's time for our famous three. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Ivonic Animal Nutrition. We are sciencing the global food challenge. AB Vista. 
offers pioneering products and technical services tailored to the poultry industry to help them succeed. Natural Biologics is looking deeper to find the natural solutions to your poultry health challenges. Adaseo provides nutritional solutions and services to help producers achieve their targets in high quality, safe, and sustainable way. DSM, helping customers with efficient, sustainable poultry production. A worldwide leader in animal nutrition, Adaseo's portfolio of products includes methionine, the full range of vitamins, enzymes, organic selenium, probiotics, mycotoxin management strategies, and palatability products. With such a diverse offering, Adaseo supports its customers with a broad range of expertise, tools, and services to help them maintain a competitive advantage. Adaseo, fueling predictable profits. To learn more, visit Adaseo at www.adaseo.com. Natural Biologics is using cutting-edge science to dig deeper into the poultry health challenges you face. By gathering scientific evidence, they identify the most effective combinations of natural ingredients that improve animal health. Visit naturalbiologics.com poultry to see the newest research in both turkeys and chickens. So to wrap up the chat today, I'll ask you the three questions that we ask all of our guests. The first one is, what is a favorite poultry-related resource? So I like to use, I have it right here, is the Poultry Nutrition and Feeding book uh, by Dr. Pesty. Uh, you know, I, I like that. You know, I kind of, I do some microbiology work as well. You know, I, I, I do some nutrition work. I, I like the nutrition a little bit better, I guess, if you have the way it out. I, yeah. There's a lot of good information there. You know, it gives you a real good, solid basis of, you know, feeding a bird, you know, understanding that nutrition aspect of it. I know there's a couple other microbiology books, you know, and under, or, uh, excuse me, in grad school, you know, there's a food microbiology book I, I re mm. reference a lot, you know, kind of the same, you know, basic methods of how we uh, analyze the feed samples. It's similar to how you would do it if you were working in, you know, a plant or something, analyzing, uh, you know, food products. It's yeah. just feed. So, I mean, that was a good uh, reference as well, a resource as well. Go yeah. back on uh, one of the, uh, one of my advisors, he, he wrote a little technical lab handbook for, for food microbiology. I reference that a lot for cereal dilutions. I am, I'm not the best at cereal dilutions, but he has you know, some nice uh, diagrams in there, old Dr. Shen. So I, I like to go back to those and kind of get an idea like, hey, am I doing this right? Like I always second guess myself on dilutions. So I'm like, I go back, I'm like this makes sense. The book says it's good. So it's got to be good. <laughs> I love that. It's it's easy to second guess yourself, especially when it's really important that you get it right. So yeah. <laughs> I totally yeah. get it. Um, what is a favorite non-poultry related resource? So I like to keep, you know, in my spare time, I, I keep some some reptiles and some invertebrates. Uh, there's a couple podcasts I like to do. One of them is Tom's Big Spiders. He just talks about you know, general tarantula stuff, uh, different species highlights in there, you know, different, I try to find the ones, you know, for the species I have, you know, Gramsol, yeah, yeah. you know, the golden knees. I just try to learn, you know, uh, you know, what he does for, you know, how he keeps his animals, what I can do to improve, you know, for mine. Uh, you know, there's some YouTube videos out there as well, different channels that talk about reptile husbandry and just general yeah. reptile care. And, you know, sometimes those are good to look at and see like, Hey, you know, here's a good idea. Oh, Hey, I didn't think about, you know, keeping my animal like that, you know, using, you know, this is a certain type of hide or something. I think that's kind of an interesting thing, seeing different people's perspectives and, and how they do it. I like hearing about people's hobbies. They are so diverse. <laughs> um, so 
not to get too invasive, but what do you have a tarantula, and what is their name? If you do, so I don't really name them, but I have I have nine of them. Oh, there are eight species, di- eight different species. Wow. Nine. So yeah, there's two of the one species, but then I have a, a, a corn snake, a sand boa, yeah, two leopard geckos, gargoyle gecko, crested gecko, and a Pac-Man frog, and a California king snake. Gosh. There's a little, it's a little, little zoo there. Yeah, it does sound like a little zoo. I, I think you got to work on names for those. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it could be like the Avengers or something. I mean, you've got enough for a whole club there, so yeah. <laughs> I could go on a theme. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so the last question is, what is your best advice for somebody to be successful in the poultry industry? I mean, I think, you know, it's going to take a lot of, you know, long hours, you know, in grad school, you know, here now, it's not just a, when you're nine to five, eight to five, whatever, eight to four, whatever type of job, you're usually working outside of normal hours, you're working some weekends and stuff. There's a lot of hard work you got to put into it, but it rewards you well. You know, I'm, I'm not the best at networking. I'm trying to get better at that. You know, I think networking's a big thing because you, you, you know, you find people and then later on down the road, you're like, oh, hey, I know Joe Schmo here. You know, he can maybe help me get in contact with someone else or if he needs, you know, help with something, he can reach out to you, you know, get you in contact. So I think, you know, networking is a big thing there as well. You're just kind of working hard, putting your nose to the ground, just just going at it, I think is also a good, you know, thing to do if you're trying to be successful. Yeah. Well, I think that is great advice. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. This was really fun. Yeah. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wisemetics, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time consuming and requires technical know-how, but don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at The Help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.